Hello there, skin folks and kin folks, and welcome to another moment, a Black History Moment with Bo. And this is a brand new year, and we are going to leave that old baggage of 2020 and 2021 behind us. And we are not even going to look back at it. The motto for 2022 is forward ever and backward never. You know, I am in the state of Arizona, and yesterday the governor of this state gave his yearly speech in which he said that critical race theory will never be taught in the state of Arizona. And it just amazes me how people will run from the truth. The fact of the matter is, like that old saying goes, the truth hurts. And they don't want their children and grandchildren to know that they did everything possible to keep us out of their schools, keep us out of their neighborhoods, and to keep us out of their so-called society. They don't want their children to be embarrassed of them or to be ashamed of their race. You know, they taught us that we were slaves, but they didn't tell us that we had 32 dynasties in commit before they came there and saw the greatness of our ancestors, knowledge and creation. Why? To keep us ignorant and controlled. Once you know better, you will stop honoring them and do for yourself and become greater. Never let the ones who enslaved us teach us anything, for he will only give you what he thinks you should know. Religion has always been the framework of conquerors. That is one of the first things they do. Take away your language and bestow their religion on you. So you got to ask yourself, would you be a Christian if your slave master wasn't a Christian? So I'm going to say this and then we're going to slip into darkness. If the truth makes you uncomfortable, don't blame the truth. Blame the lie that made you comfortable. This past Christmas Eve marked the 184th anniversary of a battle for liberty in 1837 on the banks of Lake Okeechobee, Florida, that helped shape the United States of America. An estimated 380 to 480 freedom-fighting African and Indian members of the Seminole Nation threw back an advance of more than a thousand U.S. Army and other troops led by Colonel Zachary Taylor, a future president of the United States. The Seminoles so badly mauled the invaders that Taylor ordered his soldiers to fall back, bury their dead, tend to their wounded, and ponder the greatest single U.S. defeat in decades of Indian warfare. The Battle of Lake Okeechobee is not a story you will find in school or college textbooks, so it has slipped from the public consciousness. 
But in a country that cherishes its freedom-fighting heritage, black and red Seminoles of Florida sent everyone a message that deserves to be remembered and honored. Around 1776, the Seminole Nation had reconstructed itself as a multicultural nation by aligning itself with escaped Africans who had long lived in the peninsula. Beginning in the early 18th century, hundreds of African Americans had fled bondage in Georgia and the Carolinas to find refuge and a productive life in Florida. Although Spain claimed Florida, it was an ungoverned land in which Native Americans roamed freely, as did slave runaways, pirates and whites who rejected the limitation established by European invaders. Generations of slave runaways established plantations in Florida, raised cattle and horses, brought up their children, and took care of their elderly. For 50 miles along the Apocaloa River, African people ran plantations and pursued a healthy, happy family life. When the Seminoles, which was a breakaway segment of the Creek Nation, arrived in the peninsula around the time of the American Revolution, Africans were on hand to instruct them in methods of rice cultivation they had learned in Sierra Leone. Based on this cooperation, two peoples of color hammered out an agricultural and military alliance against the U.S. slaveholder posses that periodically raided their communities. In 1816, General Andrew Jackson, he wrote of New Orleans and commander of the U.S. armies in Florida, determined to terminate this resistance on the southern flank of the U.S. border. To Jackson and slaveholders who dominated the federal government, Florida's free Seminole people of color constituted a clear and present danger to the U.S. slave system. They saw these free communities as holding a beacon light that could entice thousands of runaways to bolt Georgia and the Carolinas and Louisiana. Even more, the Seminoles offered escapees a safe haven, perhaps most important since Africans played a leadership role in the newly integrated Seminole nation. Their village stood as a successful alternative societies and refuted white claims that Africans were meant to be slaves. So being prodded by slaveholders, Washington officials connived at destroying the Seminole Alliance and reslavement of African members. So President James Madison, himself a slaveholder and so-called father of the U.S. Constitution, provided covert U.S. support to this military effort. And finally, in 1819, the United States purchased Florida from Spain and prepared to settle scores with the Seminoles. The Seminole nation, however, refused and rejected any surrender of its African brothers and sisters. The result was three Seminole Wars that lasted from 1816 to 1858, at times tied up half of the U.S. Army, 
cost the Congress $40 million and took 1,500 U.S. military deaths. It also represented the single largest and longest explosion of slave resistance in the United States. Because Seminoles fought in a jungle area they knew better than the white invaders, their armies ran circles around their numerically and technologically superior foe. Though they had added burden of moving their families out of harm's way, Seminole soldiers were able to baffle surprise and humiliate the U.S. Army, Navy, and Marines. In its desperation to quell resistance, the U.S. officers ordered the taking of women and children as hostages and the violation of other codes of warfare. But these tactics did not achieve victory or split the Red-Black Alliance, but they indicated that the Seminole Wars can be viewed as early versions of the U.S. intervention and disasters in Vietnam. In 1837, Chief Osalo and other Seminole leaders were seized coming with a white flag to a conference called by U.S. authorities. Oscello's personal bodyguard of 55 at the time included 52 men of African descent. U.S. forces imprisoned the Seminoles in a cell in Castillo de San Marcos, later renamed Fort Marion in St. Augustine. Army officials also captured another Seminole peace delegation that included two firebrands of the resistance, Wildcat 25 and his black sub-chief, John Horse, also 25. Bilingual, tall, powerfully built, and a commanding presence, Horse draped himself in silver amulets, rich sashes, and elaborate, bright-plumed head shawls. Widely respected for his knowledge of the foe and a crack shot, Horse occupied a strategic position among the Seminoles. Revered for his often-tested diplomatic talent, calm self-assurance and courage in battle, he also was brother-in-law to Halaptuchi, a leading Seminole who had the ear of Maikapi, the nation's ruler. Chiefs such as Jumper and Halatuchi repeatedly asked Horst to negotiate with the U.S. authorities. From their 18-foot-by-33-foot sail at Fort Marion, where they were held with two dozen Seminole prisoners, Wildcat and Horse devised a plan. We resolved to make our escape or die in the attempt, Wildcat later wrote. They took weeks to loosen the iron bar in the jail's 18-foot roof and create a hole eight inches wide. The heavier prisoners agreed to diet in order to slip through, and some 20 prisoners, including two women, escaped through the opening. For over five days, the band made its way southward, gathering allies and guns and living on roots and berries. U.S. Colonel Zachary Taylor raced after them. 
accompanied by 70 Delaware Indian mercenaries, 180 Missouri riflemen, and 800 U.S. regular Army soldiers from the 6th Infantry, the 4th Infantry, and Taylor's 1st Infantry Regiment. The day before Christmas, U.S. forces located the Seminoles, who had carefully positioned themselves in the northeast corner of Lake Okeechobee. Seminole marksmen were perched in the tall grass or in trees, the sprawling lake a few hundred yards behind them. Taylor's forces advanced through a swampy area and its five-foot-high razor-edged sawgrass. Movement was impassable for horses and extremely difficult for humans as soldiers sank up to their thighs in the mud and water beneath them. At 12.30 in the afternoon of Christmas Eve, Seminole snipers prepared for battle. The first shot had yet to be fired when the Delawareans, sensing disaster, deserted and left. The Missouri riflemen charged toward the Seminoles, but a withering fire brought down their commander, many commissioned officers and some non-commissioned officers. The Tennesseans fled. Colonel Zachary Taylor then ordered his regular army troops forward, and they encountered deadly rifle fire. He later reported their earliest barrage brought down every officer, and one exception as well as most of the non-commissioned officers, and left but four untouched. After a two-and-a-half-hour battle in which they had been outnumbered, Seminole forces fell back into their canoes and made their escape. As Christmas Day dawned, Colonel Taylor forces counted 26 U.S. dead and 112 wounded, seven dead for each dead Seminole fighter, and the U.S. had taken no prisoners. U.S. troops rounded up a hundred Seminole ponies, and six hundred cattle. Lake Okeechobee was the U.S. military's most decisive defeat in more than four decades of warfare in Florida. Four days after his army limped back to Fort Gardner, however, Colonel Taylor claimed victory. He said the Indians was driven in every direction. The U.S. Army accepted his report and promoted him. Ain't that the way, my friends? Ain't that the way? From that point, however, U.S. officers had to recognize the unity and strength of the African Seminole Alliance. Said General Thomas Sidney Jessup, the Negro rules the Indians and it is important that they should feel themselves secure. If they should become alarmed and hold out, the war will be resumed. Based on his reputation as an Indian fighter, Zachary Taylor was elected the 12th president of the United States. Historians continue to distort the Battle of Lake Okeechobee. In the Almanac of American History in 1983, Arthur Schlesinger Jr. summarized the battle in one inaccurate sentence. Fighting in the Second Seminole War, General Zachary Taylor defeats a group of Seminoles at Okeechobee Swamp, Florida. Yes, my friends, this is the nation of Patrick Henry, and give me liberty or give me death. The United States was born in struggle against 
British colonial rule. It proudly declared people had natural rights and dedicated itself to self-determination. The heroic freedom-fighting struggle of the Seminole Nation stands as a milestone in the American battle for liberty. So there you have it, my friends. The Christmas Eve Freedom Fighters. A story that you have never heard of or never read. A war between the U.S. and the Seminole and African Americans that are hidden in the darkness. And every generation has their purpose. And mine is to reveal the truth and reverse the brainwashing. My friends, that music tells me that it is once more that time. But before I go for the first time in 2022, I will leave you with this message. In this age of information, we have a chance to learn more and be greater than our ancestors. Don't mess it up by refusing to read. If you only listen to every talk show and read every book that everyone else is reading, you will only know what everyone else knows. Until next time, Happy New Year, and it has been my honor. <laughs>